Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with my people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm grateful, truly. And though this makes me feel like a bit of an ingrate, I'd be even more grateful if you would take a moment today to share studs with a fellow traveler who will appreciate what we're trying to do here. No pressure. Eh, maybe some gentle pressure. Do it. Maybe tell them your favorite episode. You know, you might end up sending this one. Because today, I'm joined by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Jocelyn is an earth medicine facilitator who channels the spirits of ayahuasca, yahe, and iboga to guide passengers along a sacred journey to the most vulnerable places. Joss walks us along her paths to killing egos and healing souls. And she muses on the ancestors and on love as her guiding forces. Love. Lots and lots of love. Well, I love this conversation with this medicine woman. And I know you will too. Jocelyn Gonzalez, welcome to Studs. It is such a joy to hear your voice, and I am so honored that you've come to join me on the podcast. I am deeply curious about your work. Joss, how do you describe what you do? I am an earth medicine facilitator, so that includes plants and animal medicines. And I'm also an integration specialist, which means that I help prepare people for and help them download the information that they get before and after psychedelic experiences. So could you walk me along your path from your university education to your role as an earth medicine facilitator? I'll start from my career as an educator which I started in Brooklyn for three years, and that was incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Um, I would have done it forever, but for various reasons, I felt like I had to leave New York. So I moved on to Switzerland, where I continued for another two years, and finally Berlin. And that's when I ended my time as an educator. There was um, sort of a few traumatic events that made me feel a little financially undervalued, and it made me reconsider what education was to me and my place in it. So I decided to make a career change to a more lucrative career, which I then realized may have been a mistake. And it was actually a beautiful learning experience. I moved to Boston to enter a placement program slash training program that allowed me to learn how to sell medical devices, specifically pacemakers and ICDs, which is known to be a pretty lucrative field, which it was. And I have a lot of gratitude for everything that I learned in that field. And it was also an incredible intellectual challenge to do something so far from what I had done before. 
but that sort of brought about some personality traits and issues that exacerbated some pre-existing mental health concerns. And it took what was manageable personal depression to feelings of rage and anger. And, and it sort of went along with this shift in my career to be more money-focused and more ego-focused. All of the things that came with it were very unhealthy for me. So toward the end of my seven years doing that, I started feeling this real need for change. And that came in the way of plant medicine. I was in a really dark, dark, dark place. And I just started reading more articles that just were popping up everywhere about how psychedelics can help you improve your quality of life and deal with depression and other things that I was dealing with. And one of my dear, dear friends just started reading this article that detailed the account of the writer's experience with ayahuasca. And the whole time I was listening, I was like, oh, this is, this is it. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I need. Yeah, yeah. So I went ahead and I booked my first retreat and it was so profound, but in a way that I would have never predicted. A lot of the folks that were there were using the term like, oh, I got my miracle and and my life has changed and I'm back to normal. And I didn't feel any of that. I felt like I regressed into a deeper depression and gone back to some really dark spaces. But in hindsight, what was going on was other people were going through an ego death and screaming for a couple hours and, you know, over a night. But my ego death was manifesting as this four-month-long, deep, reflective depression. And when I came out of the other end, I felt so much lighter. Like I had been carrying a backpack my whole life filled with weights. But I knew it was far from over. So I went back for another retreat. The first time I went, I was reclusive and and weird and like off in the corner, just being strange and antisocial. This time I was practically the cruise director. I was the one getting people excited. I helped my roommate overcome all of her worries about our first night. I was the positive light. And I that's when I realized like, oh, whoa, this is what I do now. I help people through this process. So when I returned from that retreat, it was on. I was completely ensconced in this world. And I just, every single weekend, and sometimes even during the work week, I was either participating in ceremonies, and then eventually I was assisting, and then I was a full-fledged helper, and then I was helping co-facilitate. So the, the the slope was very, very fast. From then I eased up on my day job and eventually completely quit. And then I was full-time medicine from then on. And I spent weeks and months in the jungle with the tribes learning from the source how this was to be treated, how this was to be imbibed. That completely changed my life. So is it safe to say that your pivot towards psychedelic medicines was a manifestation of a certain type of desperation? Like you were dealing with 
some really heavy anxiety, what you describe as mental health issues. Were you in kind of a desperate spot? Yes. Yes. Well, I've been in that desperate spot um, since I was like 12. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so uh, I was always very good about managing it in other healthy ways through meditation. I used to be a dancer, so I was very physical and that really helped me manage the symptoms. But it was really when my symptoms started turning outward. It was one thing for me to deal with my depression and being, you know, stuck in my room for days, but it was when I was being cruel to others and when I was cutting people off on the road and when I was being mean to the coffee person, you know, that's when I said, okay, you've crossed the line. This is no longer just affecting you. It's you're being cruel to other people. The desperation um, shifted from, okay, I'm suffering. I'm suffering to like, no, I'm actually hurting the universe with my actions and my behaviors. That was the turning point for me. So much of that was from what I gather from you, a result of some unrequited discussions that you were having or maybe not having with your ego. Mm. Oh yeah. This all comes down to ego. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Talk about that for me. Like you Mm. describe having ego death. I believe that the Western mindset has gotten further and further and further away from nature, including the nature of our own souls. And part of that is the growth of ego in in our society and that can mean anything from how you see yourself to the stories that you tell yourself that eventually design your entire life and your entire self-perception when you're a baby you're perfect and slowly these stories start piling on you the ego starts piling on and you very quickly lose sight of who you are and who you were meant to be So this idea of ego death is just allowing yourself to separate from all those stories and just see who you are at the core of your center without all the stories, without all the ego. And at the end of the day, we're all perfect when you strip all that away. So that ego death, you know, a lot of people get scared when they hear that term. A lot of people are very afraid of the word death but it really is I would like to call it ego relief or something like that just because I think that's much more accurate a description yeah but when you're in the throes of it it does feel like death but after it you're just like oh my god I was carrying that for how long I need a break for myself Mm. if there's anything from which I need a break (laughs) it is myself Mm. so Josh you deploy earth medicines in a variety of different healing practices. Can you describe the different practices that you're engaged in and the different opportunities that you offer? All the medicines that I work with, I really will only administer in a ceremonial setting. That can mean many things, actually. So for ayahuasca and and yahe, which is um, a Colombian version of ayahuasca, these are all night ceremonies for certain traditions. They're between the hours of seven and two in the morning or something like that. That's the shorter version for my beloved. Yeah. it's more like uh, from 9 PM to nine in the morning. So these are long and arduous 
uh, processes. And what that can mean is, you know, we're, we're all in a group together. We open up sacred space. We pray over the medicine as instructed by our teachers. We go one by one and serve everyone their cup. And we start our journey. You know, there are many, many different traditions, but I'll just speak about one in particular. It starts off in silence for several hours. That way the medicine can sort of work its way in to your body and get to know you. And this is often the most difficult time for people because this is the part where they're unfamiliar. They don't know what's happening. They're full of fear. And once we get through that silent part, then we may add music. In certain traditions, it'll be just a voice. In other traditions, they'll employ um, indigenous instruments like flutes and chapakas, like these these leaf, these dried leaves that when you shake them, you can use them almost as percussion instruments, uh, rattles, and um Some traditions will even start bringing in guitars and drums, you know, more modern instruments. When day breaks or whenever the ceremony ends, everyone just either shares just a little bit of their experience. And then we usually feed everyone just something nourishing. And then we just make sure everyone's healthy before they go off. And typically we do this for more than one night. Just because a single ceremony tends to be not enough. <laughs> so, but, the you know, we set our intentions well ahead of time. So if there is only one ceremony, then the intention is set with that contract in mind. That's mostly ayahuasca. Uh, now, bufo, which is the medicine that comes from toads, that's very different. That is incredibly fast in comparison. Uh, The journey is about 20-30 minutes, but it's very intense. Some have even described it as the entire ayahuasca night shoved into 20 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 intense, but at the same time, it's it's a different medicine. It's it's it brings about different feelings. In either case, the role of the facilitator is to guide the passengers through the journey. So that can mean me moving energy with you and for you. It can mean me just holding your hand as you purge. It can mean just holding space and just being silent as you go through your own process. Every facilitator has like a a different philosophy about these medicines, but the one that I have been taught and really resonates with me is that I, I don't like the word shaman or anything like that. I don't want any of the credit. The credit is for the passenger who made the choice to drink this sacred medicine. And it is their their bravery and their efforts that are really healing themselves. And that's, I, I, I truly want people to feel empowered, not like, oh, I have to go back to the doctor <laughs> right. to get fixed. Um, I really want them to know like, no, you did all of this. I just held the space for you and I offered you the cup. But really, you did all the work. Your description, it expresses your lack of ego, right? It's about the the passenger's courage. Mm-hmm. Hey, Josh, can we dive into a little bit of nut, nuts and bolts? Yes. How do clients find you? How do you select clients? A lot of this world is word of mouth because of the 
restrictions and limitations that governments impose on on these substances, I can't freely advertise or reach out to people in the way that I wish that I could because so many people could benefit from these medicines. Mm. I'm really uninterested (laughs) in working with people who are just curious or interested in a great night or I, I have no interest in working with people like that. But how do you, how do you determine who you can hear it? Yeah. <laughs> you can hear it in their voice <laughs> for sure. Okay. Yeah. You can, you can hear a certain uh, sincerity when someone is truly looking to enter the path of self healing and really willing to do the work and not just looking for, I hate to use drug terminology, but like the high or, you know, they saw some documentary on Vice and they, you know, they just wanted the experience. Do you turn clients down? Yes. Yes. I have turned clients down who I could just tell are just thrill seekers. And then, of course, there are the actual physical contraindications, which I must mention, of course. So all of these are serotonergic uh, substances, which means a lot of the current pharmaceuticals out there are contraindicated, namely SSRIs, because they are in conflict with these medicines. You can go into serotonin syndrome. So I will say no, unless you're willing to get off of those pharmaceuticals for a period of time to make sure they're not in your system, because that could actually be physically dangerous. And then, of course, there are other contraindications, any other street drug abuse or like opiates. These all need to be really clear of the system before you engage with plant medicine because they are not friends. (laughs) So there's that. And then, of course, any history of severe um, mental illness, like any psychosis, any severe bipolar, any severe borderline personality disorder. Some of those more severe mental conditions require a support that I cannot provide. However, there are different people who might be able to help. And those people are my teachers because they are of a different caliber. And I'm working my way toward getting a a one hundredth of their wisdom. Makes sense. Can you give me a sense of about what percent of clients you refer to other facilitators or that you otherwise just turn down? It's about 10%. And I probably turn down more than most based on personality type. (laughs) Right. I was going to ask about that. Like it really, you have to be able to connect, right? Yeah. I, I, I do think that other folks are more willing to take the thrill seekers. I just... You know, I'm also still working through all of my stuff. (laughs) And those personalities tend to trigger me. To me, that's a very sacred and vulnerable place. And I don't want the energy of people who are just looking for thrills. Like to me, that that's a bit of an abuse. And I don't want my precious plants exposed to that. That being said, other facilitators don't have those triggers and they're able to work with that energy. And I applaud them because at the end, Everyone needs a medicine, including people like that. It's just I haven't built the strength or the knowledge base or the wisdom to look past that quite yet. I respect the humility with which you 
make those decisions through word of mouth or otherwise in a somewhat clandestine way. Clients find you. Mm-hmm. You have a pre-consultation with them, it sounds like. You you speak on the phone. They meet you in a particular setting. You interview them. How does that work? Like I said, so much of it is word of mouth. So it's rare that a complete stranger comes up to me. They usually know a friend of a friend or someone who's experienced it or, you know, there's, there's some sort of foundation to work with. But yeah, we usually sit on the phone for anywhere between 10 and 10 minutes and an hour to really take a deep dive into why they're doing this, how, what sort of health they're coming with, and if they're willing to clean themselves out a bit before, because in addition to abstaining from some pharmaceuticals, most of the traditions require a form of a preparatory diet. So that means usually abstaining from animal foods just because they carry a lot of energy. Yeah. And digestive issues, obviously. So that caffeine, just anything unnecessarily inflammatory, because there will be purge. That is a huge part of this medicine. It will induce purging. So if you have a hamburger in your stomach, the kind of purge that you will have is not pretty. (laughs) Yeah. So in the process of communicating with new clients, you have what sounds like a checklist for them and they have to commit to not eating meat, taking it easy on caffeine, uh, treating their bodies while not eating salt. Mm -hmm. And then you establish an appointment. How long does it take before a new client can enjoy earthly medicines? Depending on what state they're in when I find them. So if they're already a vegan and a yoga instructor and, you know, like we're talking a week, you know, if it's someone who has an opiate addiction, they're just getting off now, they're eating processed food all day long and watching nothing but violent shows and, you know, having sex with prostitutes. Yeah, I'm going to wait a full month before I feel like they're ready to accept any sort of earth medicine, just because what's going to come out is just, it's, it won't be fun for them or for me. And it'll, it'll just be tough. (laughs) It'll be tough. And it would be unsafe. Most importantly, it would be unsafe. And, and that's first priority and everything else like falls into place after that. So after the agreed upon time transpires, you meet your 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 passenger at an undisclosed setting um, without revealing anything geographical. In what types of settings do these ceremonies tend to take place? If it's a one-to-one session, which is much more likely for, say, Buffal, that could be in the client's home or it could be in my home or it can be outside if it's in a safe enough and and private enough environment for some of the larger ceremonies where we have upwards of so uh in terms of just my personal work i've never had more than 20 people in one ceremony but i have assisted in many ceremonies that are upwards of 80 90 people i know i know yeah yeah and in those situations um, they're outdoor malokas, uh, these these structures that resemble yurts. 
actually I was in one jungle ceremony that had 400 people and we're just all out in the jungle, all of the beautiful frogs and insects. And it was just unbelievable. So, so it can range. (laughs) The range is huge. Yeah. Hey, Josh, can you give me a sense of what percentage of clients you meet in their home? What percent you meet in your home? Ballpark. If I had to say just Bufo alone, I would say 50-50 actually. For ayahuasca, I would say 0%. Okay. And Bufo tends to be more of a one-on-one. It's a shorter, more intense thing. It might happen at your house. It might happen at their house. Yes. So let's focus on the Bufo ceremony for a moment if we can. Can you walk me through that shorter, more intense experience and, and how you approach it? Because it's such an intense experience, I tend to do more preparatory work with the client because I really need them to come to a place of stillness before they take the medicine in. It is smoked, which is different than ayahuasca, which is drunk. It's a a tea. Bufo is a smoked vapor. It comes from the glands of the Sonoran toad. And when glands are expressed, it releases this liquid that becomes this resin and that resin gets put into a pipe and it's smoked. All of that is already very intimidating for clients. So before we even start, I usually do a round of breath work and meditation for about 20 minutes to an hour, depending on the state of the chaos that they come in to ceremony with. After that, I open with some prayers to just ensure that we have a good journey and to invite all of the spirit helpers to help us through the journey. And then I prepare the pipe for the client to smoke. Once they do that, it's so fast that usually the client goes in rather rapidly. Um, And that means that I have to be physically very ready to support them. I have to help them lay down in certain cases. I have to help them purge if they must. If they're shaking, I have to ensure that they're not hurting themselves. So I may have to gently just make sure all their limbs are in the right spots. And for some people who are really resistant, I may have to help them move energy. And I use a different couple of techniques for this. A lot of it is using rattles and drums to help move energy. Sometimes I'll use feathers and lotions to help bring them back into their body and and bring some of the other earthly medicines into their sphere. So feathers often remind people of birds and animals to help protect them in this very confused state. So, and the rattles help them remember how to move energy through their body. These are all sort of very base reminders. And when I say base, I mean, these are the sounds that we knew when we were babies. We knew how to react to these sounds. So I work with them over about 10, 15 minutes. And the moment that I realize, okay, they're starting to come back to their body. They're starting to enter back into their own consciousness. I try to get out of their way as much as possible, but by still holding space. So I just sit and I wait because some people try to really rush out of the experience and they say, okay, I'm fine. And they stand up and they fall back down. And 
I really want to create an environment where they feel like they could sit there for another hour, two hours, a whole day if they want, because it's such a precious experience that I want them to hold it forever. And most people say that they feel complete dissolution of their earthly body and they feel at one with the universe. I remember my first Bufo experience. I felt like I completely particled out and I joined the air and the wind and the sky and it all became one. And I felt this combination of incredible loneliness from having left myself and incredible oneness from not needing an earthly body anymore because I was just swirling with God. <laughs> it was incredible. So I would say that these are common accounts for what people experience is this connection with God and universe and and spirit. It's it's an incredibly powerful medicine. People cry. People yell. Ugh. You deal yes. with a lot of people who are desperate to leave their egos and they are crying and they are yelling and they are very much out of their um, element, mm. right? They are in another dimension, if you will. How do you keep your balance and keep your center and guide them through that? Mm. A lot of the work that I do is about making sure that it is not me, Jocelyn, in that room. It is a version of me. And I'm there to support and bring all the lessons that I've learned from my teachers. But ultimately, I'm just a vessel for, for the experience. So with that, emptiness comes a protection. It comes a protection that it's not affecting me, the human Jocelyn. I remember once this passenger screaming at me really directing all this negative energy to me. And I felt it at my core and she was saying awful things like you're taking all of our traumas and you're keeping them for yourself. Like really like just horrible accusatory things. And I remember feeling like I was going to die under all of this negative energy. But all I did was I just shifted my body just 45 degrees over and I let her continue and before you know it, her eyes just opened and she looked at me. She's like, oh my God, Jocelyn, did I just say all that? Mm. And she completely didn't realize that she said any of it. She didn't mean a word of it, but it was like some subconscious level of a purge of the fears that she came into the experience with that she thought some shamans were bad or some healers were bad. Some facilitators are evil and they're looking to collect all of these you know, and that was her purge. She was getting rid of all that. And I remember it was that moment that was such a great lesson for me because had I not even made that little shift, I would have taken all that on. And I would have seen myself as this evil person who's taking all these people's traumas as some weird egotistical claim of my own. And I think that really helped me protect myself for the future as well, because that could have that could have made me stop facilitating altogether. <laughs> you know, just right, right. being accused of such crimes would hurt anyone, especially coming to the medicine with all the love that I have for it. Oh, it was painful to hear, but it was an important lesson to go through. 
I guess I'm curious as to how in a Bufo experience where people's behaviors can be really intense, very unpredictable, as you describe it, and you try to pivot away from negative energy and you're aware that it's not about you, but it's you there in the room trying to guide people who are grappling with some really intense feelings. Their self is being stripped from them so that it can be reintegrated in a better, more holistic form. And you have to be there with them. How do you do that while maintaining your own psychological stability, your own health and wellness? I think having gone through the experiences myself offers me a lot of trust in the experience. I myself have behaved in a way that I would have difficulty accepting as a facilitator, but I always come back to myself and I come back to myself in a, in a better way. Because I've had so many experiences and I've seen so many experiences, I know I know that all of this ends well. I have so much trust in the medicine and in the process and in myself as a facilitator. I know that I'm coming in with the best of intentions and with all the teachings of, of my beloved teachers. Like I, I, I'm, I'm well equipped <laughs> when I'm walking into that room. And when I'm not well equipped, that's when I don't take the client because I know that I can't handle that particular energy. So you feel pretty safe in that environment. Mm, yes. There are certain precautions that I do take. Um, if I am doing a one-on-one, -on -one, I make sure that I have someone with me, an assistant who understands the medicine, um, just in case it becomes physical. I mean, Dan, you know, I'm 5'2". <laughs> I'm a tiny woman. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not always a walk in the park and love and light. Sometimes it's helping someone through some, some dark spaces. It sounds really rigorous. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine how you process that, but I, and, and I'll, and I'll ask about that. I do want to know that first, give me a sense of what proportion of your work is Bufo and what proportion is ayahuasca and yahe. That shifts a lot okay. um, based on the availability of the medicine. It's very important to me that the medicine is sourced with integrity. So that means at times that there's a shortage of medicine because I won't just take any medicine because, you know, there, there are unethical ways of obtaining these plants and animals. And I think all facilitators should never rely on facilitation as their main income source, because I think it changes your approach to the medicine when you rely on it to survive. So with a snapshot of a Bufo uh, ceremony taken, let's talk about ayahuasca. Talk to me if you would be so kind about how you approach leading an ayahuasca ceremony. So ayahuasca is much more rooted in lineage. Bufo is somewhat new to the human experience. 
that being said, ayahuasca is very deeply rooted in the lineage of the particular medicine we serve. So the most important thing is that I'm being respectful to that lineage and that I am doing everything that I'm taught to respect that lineage. Can you take a bit of a deeper dive into that? Because I have the sense that a lot of your work is wrapped up in seeking to respectfully engage with a a history, a tradition. One of my concerns going into this field was this feeling of appropriation. And it's very important for me to have studied with the actual tribes. I'll give you one example because there are many, many tribes. (laughs) But I studied pretty deeply with the people teachers. The nature of how we work as facilitators is very different. We are taught to walk with jaguar paws. We are taught to, even when we put down a bottle of water, we do it so gingerly because we don't want to get in the way of someone's vision or someone's experience. We are supposed to be just these quiet movers of energy. The master healers, the teachers, the true healers, the Shipibo, they are given songs, ikaros, that help. Them. They, it's actually a way for them to sing to the medicine within your body. This is done different ways for different groups. But as one example, one of the healers will go directly in front of a passenger and sing directly to the medicine that is in that person's body. And what will often happen, and people are always so afraid of it, they'll start purging, right, when the healer is there. But that's actually a great compliment to that healer. Oh, wow. Because that's sort of what they want to happen is is to encourage you to purge what no longer serves you. That's the whole point of the purge. It's getting rid of the stories, getting rid of the dogma, getting rid of the trauma. So purges encourage. <laughs> so that's one version of our role in one type of ceremony. Okay. And then with another tribe, just to give you a cut, like compare contrast with Yahe, it's very different. It's much louder. <laughs> and, and it's also the brew is much more purgative. So you'll hear this cacophony of purge sounds and people running back and forth to the bathroom and it's much more chaotic and but that being said there's also a lot more light work in there so we have candles lit so people it's not completely dark and I think I mentioned before the first part is silent but once the chants start the ikaros start oh boy it becomes (laughs) The vibe of it is much more animalistic, and we are all so, how do I even put this? (laughs) We're much more hands-on with the healing. So we're sitting there chanting, kind of at the top of our lungs, some of us. Some of us are whispering our chants. We pray over the medicine. We have the female healers often work with feathers, and the men work with wairas, which are stride sacred leaves. And they're all very loud. <laughs> and we're over each passenger, like really um, moving their energy. Our hands are on them. Our hands are on their heads. We're putting sweet lotions all over them where in Spanish, it, it means blowing, but you're actually kind of spitting, <laughs> for lack of a better term, chandur, which is a, a sacred 
liquid over their body. It's, it's so different. It's so different. It's truly the chaos of the jungle. Yeah. It, it, it brings you back to source. It brings you back to the beginning of time. Mm. It's so incredible. And, and you do generational trauma and, and you fix, you fix things for your family. You didn't even realize needed fixing. It's an incredible process. So I'm clearly passionate about all of the different versions, um, but they are, they are very different from one another. Mm. It's pretty beautiful. <laughs> it sounds beautiful. Now, is this part of your upbringing? Were you raised with respect for indigenous people? Yes. And was this part of your culture growing up at all? Yes and no. Um, so I'm half Guatemalan and half Filipino. In, in Guatemala, the population, it's one of the highest indigenous populations in the world um, because the Mayan people have really maintained a lot of their own culture and the language is preserved. So I always had a, a pretty deep exposure to all of this growing up because that, that's the stuff that our house was decorated with. We had, you know, cups from old Mayan carvers and tapestries and bags. And it was just part of our aesthetic, really. Mm. What I understand now is all of this is medicine. I remember when it first clicked for me was when I was in Colombia and, you know, we were drinking a hail. <laughs> it was wonderful. But we started working with the women and the women were just like, no, no, no. The medicine is the weaving. And we would sit in circles and weave together. And the people do the same thing, even though, you know, these people don't necessarily know each other or interact. But the weaving is the stories of the medicine and it's meditative and it's the medicine of the people. So plant medicine is one thing, but the inner medicine of maintaining a culture and a language and a way to touch people, that's the true medicine. So that being said, being raised with my grandmother, so one of the medicines that comes from the Mayan culture is cacao. And we had cacao all the time. And when I saw people having cacao ceremonies, I'm like, what are you talking about? That's just what my grandma gets. <laughs> and then I realized like, oh, I was raised by a medicine woman, <laughs> for goodness sake. Like, and, and, and just <laughs> these things uh, start clicking for you as you realize like, oh, those bags that we came home with, like that was medicine. And, and when I got the Mayan womb massage, like people are charging $200 for that. And my grandma did that for me all the time. And it made me realize like, oh, I've been blessed with just this indigenous knowledge since I was born. I'm so fortunate to have been exposed to that. Um, so that's why when you ask how long have I been doing this, I sort of laughed because right. I would say I've been doing this for a lifetime because these messages have been passed to me since I was born, but before I was born. Yes. One of the lessons that the, one of the female leaders passed down is the reality that when I was in my mother's stomach, I had all the eggs in me that I would have. And she had all her eggs when she was in her mother's stomach. So I was already in my grandmother's stomach <laughs> if all this makes sense like this very russian doll situation uh -huh. like this intergenerational 
passing of wisdom is is inevitable. I feel like I've been a medicine woman for generations. <laughs> I feel like that might just be true. You know, I've been thinking and meditating a bit about intergenerational trauma. Mm. It took me Mm. longer than I care to admit to come around to believing in its existence. It took me yet longer to begin to appreciate the power of it. And I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of the impact it's had on me. Mm. And being of Jewish ancestry in Germany makes it hard to Mm. forget that. But I'm really committed to working through some of that. And even if it's, even if intergenerational trauma isn't what I think it is, it must be important for me to think it through to the best of my ability. Mm. But I say that in a way to say this, so much of what you do is wrapped up in vulnerability and cultivating trusting working relationships with clients. Joss, how do you do that? Deal with their vulnerability or deal with my vulnerability? (laughs) Well, yes. Mm. Right. The answer to that is yes. Mm. That's how we were meant to interact with one another. I think of the way kids play with each other. They're all a bunch of open wounds, like crying all over each other. <laughs> that That's the most natural way to be, actually, is completely vulnerable all the time. I don't think it's um, as challenging as it seems. It's actually quite beautiful to see someone at the core of their being exposing all of their wounds. But just to touch back on the intergenerational trauma, it's very real. Yeah. Because whether or not you were there, your people were. (laughs) And that got passed down over and over with how your parents treated you, how your parents saw the world, and how your grandparents... It's it's inevitable. So those people who have trouble accepting that that's a real thing, I mean, how can you you not see it? Well, you have to have it in front of you. I suppose. And it also forces one to reconcile with the dogma of Mm. agency Mm. and this notion that we are the sum total of the decisions that we make in our lives. Mm. And so there are a lot of cultural cues that suffocate any space that intergenerational trauma or dialogues about intergenerational trauma can offer Mm. like the western protestant tradition and the notion of just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is really antithetical to the problems that intergenerational trauma poses i feel like the word trauma is often misunderstood it is not necessarily an acceptance of a victimhood it could just be information It could just be like, oh, this is why, and I can make a different choice now that I know that. It doesn't pigeonhole or limit anything. It just provides more information. It seems to me that so much of your work is a noble effort to 
help your passengers reconnect with their soul. How do you do that? Honestly, the quickest way is to go to that moment, that moment when they lost the connection to their soul. That is often the first trauma they experience, no matter how big or small. Maybe it was the time your mother pushed you away when you were trying to hug her or the time you were rejected in kindergarten or whatever it is. Once we get back to those moments, that is when you realize, oh, wait a minute, I was perfect before this. Because it's really the accumulation of the stories that we tell ourselves about whether we're worthy, whether we're lovable. When we go back to that moment and realize we were actually perfect and we've always been perfect, that's when we can be free to make decisions about how to proceed in life because we're not restricted by that story holding us to anything other than a story that happened. Hmm. Because I think so much of what our society deems as strength is actually control, Hmm. which is, in my opinion, the opposite of strength. All of these modalities, meditation, whatever, they teach you how to lose that control and just let whatever it is just be. And I think that's the quickest way to reconnect with your soul because your soul is just sitting there waiting for you to come back. Yeah. It's not mad at you. (laughs) You know, it just wants you to come back. How's your soul doing? Mm. I I have the sense that you found your way to psycho-spiritual integration coaching because you felt like you lost your soul or you lost parts of yourself. Mm. And though I know you're not on the path to find yourself, you are on this path to find your soul. How's your soul, Jess? Oh, my soul is incredibly happy. Yes, I think I definitely lost my way kind of early on. And I sat there in struggle, assuming that that was the path laid out for me. I remember it was in an iboga ceremony. It's a beautiful medicine, but it does take you back to your childhood self and it has you have a conversation with that childhood version of yourself. And I remember very distinctly, I saw her and all I saw was the back of her head and she had two cute little pigtails. And I remember exactly the picture that my memory had that derived that hairstyle and everything. But she had her back to me and I remember the facilitator was asking me to to have her turn around and she just wouldn't. She was very petulant and I saw her shaking her head no and he had me beg her like, please, I'm so sorry if I hurt you. Please talk to me. And she just never would. (laughs) And then finally she just uttered and I heard my voice. I heard my childhood voice. Just say, I'm not going to turn around. You're a liar. And it was so profound to feel that feeling of just my childhood self, just not trusting me to hear whatever she had to say. And it was heart-wrenching. And I had to leave the conversation by saying, I love you. I'm so sorry. And I'll never do it again. (laughs) And when you're ready, I'll listen. 
And it took like another 15 ceremonies for her to talk to me. And now we just skip around town together. Yeah. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Yeah, along these lines, I'm interested in the degree to which your work is predicated upon the belief, the assumption that we are born pure mm. and without ego. Yes, I think that's a necessary belief for me to proceed with this work. I do believe that we are born perfect. That being said, I'm not saying we're born complete. Mm. I think we're born perfect. <laughs> we have to constantly cleanse ourselves of the energies that we take on during our lifetime, whether it's the trauma that my dad didn't figure out or you know the trauma that my sister was inflicting on me. Uh, these are all things that muddle who it is we actually are. There is space for self. There is space for personality. There is space for, you know, you're allowed to create something for yourself. It's really about just making sure that it is your truest self and not some story you've told yourself. I never would have imagined that Tina Turner was going to make it into this conversation, but I know <laughs> you were a dancer. Yes. <laughs> Joss, What's love got to do with it? <laughs> and, and to be more specific and clear in my question, how is your work guided by love? What has love got to do with it, if anything? It has everything to do with all of it. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the most important ingredient of all of this work. It is the foundation of Every decision I make now. <laughs> mm. It's so amazing because not only do you have love for everyone else and everything else, like I've never loved animals more. I've never loved plants more. I've never loved breathing more. I've never loved myself more. And I remember as a kid, it was always like when you wanted to insult someone, oh, you love yourself <laughs> as, as an insult. <laughs> And now I just think about that and imagine if everyone did and the kinds of decisions that would be different if everyone just truly chose love. Well, I am on team choose love, Joss, and <laughs> I'm thrilled to hear that you are too. And may I say thank you for saying that and for your reminder mm. that choosing love might just be the key to it all. Maybe it is just that straight. Mm. Mm. So you're new to this work and it's clear that you're deeply passionate about it. If for no other reason, then it's about humility and it's about love and it's about destroying ego. And with this humility in mind, you recognize that you have a lot to learn. What aptitude, skills, approaches do you hope to refine to make you better at your practice? My approach, just to give you an overview, has always been, even though there are certain ceremonies where I'm the lead, I'm the main person, I also make sure that I 
am assisting in ceremonies where I'm the one cleaning buckets. I'm the one helping someone shower. I'm the, you know, so I want to make sure that I have ones where I'm at the bottom of the totem pole to make sure that my ego doesn't get confused and that at the end of the day, I'm always in service to the medicine and that I'm always learning from other facilitators and that when it's my teachers, I am nothing and I am only there to listen to their words and watch their approaches and learn from them. On a couple of occasions in this conversation, which I must say I'm enjoying tremendously, you've talked about being in service to the medicine. What does that mean to you? It helps remind me that the wisdom and intelligence passed on truly comes from the plants. Even though my beloved teachers are in their human form, even they will admit that it's the plants that taught them. And I think it helps shift this super man-centered, anthrocentric view of what the world is. And it, it has shifted for me. I have much greater respect for what this earth has offered us in terms of healing. I don't know if you read the Michael Pollan book. Uh, I think it's his most recent book. It's called How to Change Your Mind. It begins with a history of psychedelic experimentation in the United States and where that all sort of went cattywampus. Mm. But he's an advocate of psychedelic experimentation for medical and spiritual reasons. And in this book, he deploys this metaphor from this Dutch psychologist who talked about our minds as being like a Swiss Alp. When we're born, we have 10 meters deep perfect powder Hmm. and then as we age we carve out these neural pathways these different ways from the top to the bottom of the hill and as we get older we tend to take the same pathways down we tend to use the same paths to get to solutions to what we perceive to be the problems Hmm. and a psychedelic experience a plant-based experience can be like adding a few meters of powder, mm. forcing us to fundamentally reconsider our, our way down, fundamentally reconsider how we are approaching problems. Mm. I remember reading that analogy and finding it remarkably compelling. Do you? You're right. On a scientific level, there are different neuropathways that are being forged and opened up and reconnected and developed. All of that is has been studied. The way I like to think of it a little bit more is it allows more space, more space for you to decide something. So instead of always being in reaction mode because you took, you know, that one route down every single time your mom yelled at you, you can actually have some space and respond instead of react. And I think that offers you choice in life because you're not just on autopilot. You're not on that same trail that you've been on forever. That's really powerful. You know, it's interesting. It's like it's an interesting thought experiment because on one level, I'd be curious about how like the work of Otto Rank and other like post-Freudian thinkers, like the like sort of 
Jungian and neo-Jungian thinkers could integrate mm. what you do into what is irrefutably talk therapy. Mm-hmm. But one thing I like about the likes of Michael Pollan and Carlos Castaneda back when he was trying to create dialogue around all of this is that much of what they're endeavoring to do is to explain things that are nearly impossible to explain with words, Mm -hmm. but to use those explanations to influence policies so that people Mm. who could very much benefit from the types of ceremonies that you, that you facilitate so that those people can have access. Um, And one thing that Pollen writes about that I'd like to hear your experiences with, if you have them, is these clinical trials of people who are facing death, people who have late stage cancer, terminal illnesses. So in this book, he talks about guiding terminally ill patients through mushroom or ayahuasca trips. Mm -hmm. And something like 80% of terminally ill patients who reported really high levels of anxiety about death before that experience reported relatively and remarkably lower levels of anxiety after the experience and those feelings lasted until their death. Mm. Have you had passengers who are facing imminent death? Absolutely. That's actually a a very important demographic. I actually have a friend who identifies as a death doula, who's exactly as you described, someone who prepares someone for their impending death and helps bring them solace and acceptance very important. Um, I think what makes death so acceptable with the help of these medicines is exactly that ego death. When you experience that, what you release is a lot of attachments to what you think your life is. What is fear made of? And what are the stories I can release right before I cross over. Mm. Once you've had an ego death or two, you realize the only thing to really fear is maybe the pain associated with those last days. And even then, you almost see it as this beautiful relief. And I think these medicines give you a few tools to learn how to let go and accept this beautiful part of life, which is death. Well, that seems to me, that being the bringing together of life and death under the same umbrella, Mm. like an opportune time for us to begin to drive this train into the station, Joss. Okay. (laughs) I'm hoping you might share with me the story of a triumph that you've had as a facilitator and maybe the story of a missed opportunity or dare I say a failure. 
Well, I'll start with a failure just because I won't tell you one, (laughs) (laughs) meaning, (laughs) and I would change it from professional failure to a professional challenge in that I do get a lot of people who claim that they don't feel anything or claim, oh, I didn't experience anything, which is pretty impossible. Like when you have people all around you purging and screaming and shaking and sweating and nothing happens to you, that's just not physically possible. What I see in that person is a lack of readiness or a resistance. And almost invariably, that person experiences the change after the fact. And the only sadness for me is that I don't get to relish in the glory of that person's transformation because they're no longer in front of me. But it happens. And it happens in these subtle or surprising ways. Like I've had people say, oh my gosh, uh, my kid was screaming and I didn't send her to a room. I just like sat there and held her instead. Or oh, this guy cut me off. And instead of chasing him down and honking at him, I just let it go. And these are the moments where you're just like, oh, that night was not nothing. Mm. So you just sort of have to trust that it will happen for them. Yeah. So I would say that that would be my professional challenge. <laughs> yeah, I'll take the challenge. There you go. <laughs> Can I hear a story of triumph? Oh, yeah, you got yeah. it. Oh, so There's many. <laughs> so many to choose from. I love that. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. So I have a very dear friend of mine who I have been journeying with for a while now. Always Yahe. He has always had so much shadow work. So the depth of his journeys were always so dark. You know, he still loved it. He benefited a lot, but it was always a a tremendous amount of work. And he was ready to try Bufo with me. And knowing how he normally approaches medicine, I was a little concerned, but I said, you know what, I'm just going to trust in what to give him. And I figured out the dose and sort of how I wanted to approach his journey. And it was so beautiful because I sort of expected him to go into that dark area because that was my experience with him. But instead, he just looked like a light was shining on him the entire time. He was so still to the point where I was almost concerned that nothing was happening. (laughs) But he told me afterward that he just felt so light and at peace. And what was even more important is the days after it kept on revisiting him. And this lightness of being after so much darkness was just transformational for him to share that with someone who I care so deeply about was such an honor. A triumph indeed. Mm. My jaw hurts a bit from smiling so much during that story, Joss. I never let guests leave without recommending a guest I should pursue, either a person or a profession. Have any recommendations, Joss? I would love it, actually. If you can find someone who does stand up or like spoken word or something where they share things orally, I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real intimacy and vulnerability to that. Mm. And I'll bet it wouldn't be too hard, right? What stand up doesn't want to 
get more exposure. Yeah, more exposure. Get a free ride on a podcast. I will, to honor you, do everything I can to get a stand up on this podcast. (laughs) Jocelyn Gonzalez, it was such a pleasure to learn from you. And it brings me great joy to learn that you are deeply engaged in a project about love, about facilitating people's spiritual growth, about helping people to heal in a time when the world desperately needs people just like you. So thank you for doing the work that you do. And thank you for being on the podcast. Mm, Thank you. Jocelyn Gonzalez, my friends. Earth Medicine Facilitator. All right. So subscribe. It helps me if you subscribe to the show. Leave a comment, leave a review. And pretty please, with sugar on top, share this episode with your people. I'll see you all next time.